For Pacifica Radio, November the 23rd, 2023. I'm Scott Horton. This is Anti-War Radio. All right, y'all, welcome to the show. It is Anti-War Radio. I'm your host, Scott Horton. Actually celebrating 13 years here on the radio on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. I am the editorial director of Antiwar.com, and I'm the author of the book Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. You can find my full interview archive, almost 6,000 of them now, going back to 2003, at scotthorton.org and at youtube.com slash scotthortonshow. And you can follow me on Twitter, if you dare, at scotthortonshow. All right. Introducing the great Michael Tracy, independent journalist and uh, writer at mtracy.net. That's also his handle on Twitter, where he's raising hell all the time and doing a lot of great original reporting for us, too. Welcome back to the show, Michael. How are you, sir? I'm good. Thanks for plugging mtracy.net. That's actually a soon-to-be-relaunched portal to my uh, Substack, so I appreciate that. I just got the URL. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. And isn't it neat that Substack will let you do that? They don't even care if you have Substack in your URL. They just let you. Have I don't you want. understand the logic exactly, but I, I go with the flow. That's great. Yeah, and great writing, uh, great work as always. And um, uh, what the hell else was I going to say? I forgot. But um, we have so much. Oh, I know what it was. I was going to say, after how are you? Where are you, Michael Tracy? Where am I right now? Right now, I'm in um, Tel Aviv. I was in Jerusalem for about two or so weeks. I went into the West Bank, uh, East Jerusalem, a number of times. Very interesting. Okay, so when did you go over there? About a couple of weeks in the war, you decided to go see for yourself, huh? Yeah, so I was in the UK on October 7th, and after a week or two, I, it occurred to me that I was about five or six hours closer to Israel than I would be if I was in the U.S., so I figured that's as good as re- reason of any as any to— uh, head over there for the first time. It's my first experience in Israel. Um, unlike others, I never had the uh, a burning passion to go and, uh, you know, reunite with my biblical ancestry or anything, but it's a uh, newsworthy time. So there I went and it's uh, it's been pretty enlightening thus far. Man, well, do tell everything, especially, I guess, you know, if you want to just go through chronologically where you've been and what you've seen, you went first to West Jerusalem. Is that right? Um, no, first I went to, I was in Tel Aviv for a couple, for uh, a while and I, by chance happened to stay essentially right across the street from the Israeli ministry of defense, <laughs> which is a, uh, an apt location. Um, they were using you as a human shield in the war or what? No, I wasn't used as a human shield as far as I know. I mean, the Mossad have a lot of tricks, so maybe unbeknownst to me. Yeah. I was being used as a human human shield, but not nothing that I was. But they put the Ministry of. of Defense right in the middle of a populated city. The Ministry of Defense is right in the middle of a populated city. That is true. So, I guess you could argue that I was being used as a human shield, or I volunteered myself as a human shield for the time that I was staying there. Um, but you know that uh, the first like observation that just pops out at you, or popped out at me anyway, is how suffuse Israel is with nationalistic imagery. And the only parallel that came to mind for me was post 9-11 in the U.S. I happened to be in the 
tri-state area of New York, so northern New Jersey, close enough where, you know, there were lots of people who were affected by 9-11, and even there, everywhere you looked, there was an American flag draped out a window or on a balcony, or there are all these new uh, flagpoles going up and, and whatnot, and I don't know, I'm sure you remember every cable news, Chiron had an American flag graphic <laughs> for a while, and in Israel, it's like that, but times, I don't know how many. And uh, so there's just an Israeli flag virtually plastered everywhere that you you, you look. And lots of lots more soldiers that I'm told are around and just kind of visible and present than have been the case, which makes sense because a large number of them were called up from the reserves for um, for the war. And so that's that's point number one. Just that there's this all-consuming visual symbolism and imagery that's clearly designed to galvanize support for the war effort. Now, a lot of it's also organic, so it's not as though ordinary Israelis have to be propagandized by the government to express their nationalistic affinities with the, the state at a time of war. Um, that's done organically in large measure, just like it was in the U.S. after 9-11, but Nonetheless, it's just very um, garishly displayed all over the place. So that's kind of well, the you know, first thing that you notice. So it's anti-war radio. I'm Scott Horton talking with Michael Tracy. It's interesting that you say that. Um, I, I've never been over there, but I know from talking with Max Blumenthal, who lived over there for a little while while he was writing Goliath. And there's a great documentary called Defamation that's made by an Israeli Jew who essentially goes out in search of anti-Semitism. Uh, but the show begins, the documentary begins with him explaining that in Israel, I guess what you're describing now, Michael, is not a reaction just to October 7th, but that it's always like that. And he says, you know, it's essentially America in 2002 is Israel all the time. And that's in terms of the propaganda about just how in danger your mama is at any given time and that kind of thing, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's it's always present to some extent, and that I would have been aware of even before coming. But you would, as you would imagine, in the in a time of war fever, that gets ramped up to another level. So it's it's the pre-existing dynamic, but drastically amplified. Yeah. Um, now there's there's lots I could get into, but now we have limited time. So just I'll give you. Well, an we got half an hour, so take your time. I'm very interested okay. to hear whatever insights you have here. Yeah, yeah. So I'll give you the West Bank stuff because that I haven't uh, really divulged anywhere yet. And it's pretty interesting. Um, so I ended up making contact with a settler, a Jewish settler who lives in one of these what's what are called hilltop communities in the West Bank. And they're called illegal. Now, I tend not to buy into the whole paradigm of international law because it seems totally toothless and meaningless to me. And people make appeals to it as though it carries any particular weight. And so I just kind of bypassed that whole point of reference. But per international law, allegedly it's illegal. But certainly the people who are in the hilltop communities don't care one way or another because in large part, they are only viewing themselves as bound by divine law or divine yeah. writ. Well, it's worth um, mentioning that the Israelis yeah. have signed the Geneva Conventions, so they're bound by them, whether the U.S. overlord would ever enforce the law against them or not is sort of a separate question, but... Are they really bound by it, though? Because they 
I mean, the occupation has been in place since 1967. Well, so in the same sense that you have the right to bear it. arms, even if Bill Clinton passes a law that says you can't have a rifle, he's just violating your rights. In this case, they're violating the law. But it's still the well, law. Violating yeah. international law, but what's the enforcement mechanism? There is none. Yeah, but that's not so different in that than case, any is law. It really a meaningful law. But that's not different such? than any law anywhere in the world, right? Cops run red lights, yeah. kill people, do whatever they want. They holler waistband. Judges get away with framing people in conspiracy with the prosecutor. There's no law that applies to them either. All law you can't is go just make but, 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 but if somebody if somebody wrongly deprives you of your liberties in the U.S., you can in theory go to a court. You can sue them. You can bring criminal ac action. You can well, appeal same thing to with the UN and the Geneva Conventions. You get a UN Security really Council resolution, then America bombs you. That's how the law is enforced. You know. Okay, I guess my, my my as a brief digression, my point on international law is I would, th I think that look, it's not to absolve Israel of anything by noting that international law tends to be a farce. I would just wish people would make appeals to moral reasoning or argumentation about the rightness or wrongness of what Israel or anybody is doing without invoking these kind of hollow and... Um, well, I, think I somewhat agree with you. Ho I mean, hollow, hollow nostrums around international law that clearly are only at the only enforced at the pleasure of the hegemon in the, in the international system, which is the U.S., which Israel is an extension of. So at a certain point, you're just kind of like barking up the wrong tree. Yeah, but look, I mean, it's the same thing as saying under the U.S. Constitution, only Congress can decide whether to start a war. And it's wrong for Congress to just pass these resolutions allowing the president to decide instead. And so they're breaking the law. And that's not the whole point. That's not what that's not what makes having these wars wrong. But it's part of it that they're breaking the law. And they're the ones in charge of enforcing it. I just think the, the law, such as it exists within a certain polity, like the United States, which has a constitution, which has courts. Well, as Al Gore said, so there's no controlling legal authority, right? I mean... Right. For, for, there's no controlling legal authority for international law to at all, except at the whim of the hegemon. Yeah, but um, it's the so, same thing about the people who run the state here. There's no controlling legal authority that binds their behavior either, no, other I, than, I guess... Let's, let's not get bogged down in that uh, theoretical uh, argument, but the, uh, on, the, on the settlements, they're called hilltop settlements, and they're populated by some of the most ardently messianic Jewish settlers, and the one that I met and rode around with in his Jeep, which was an exciting experience, it actually had just rain that day, so I didn't even know where to make it through some of these mud roads and things, because you got to remember, because even per Israeli law, some of these settlements are not legal, they have to like construct their own infrastructure and pave their own roads and stuff, which oftentimes the army and the police turn a blind eye to. So they tolerate it and they acquiesce to it tacitly. But a lot of the infrastructure is a mess. So we were riding around in these kind of backwood areas. And <laughs> amusingly, the guy likened himself in his hilltop settler community to um, American rednecks. That was his closest analog. Now, I don't tend to begrudge rednecks, but that was what he brought up. So, OK, I'll take it. And... Um, you know, and he self-described to me, and by the way, I'm not naming him, I'm not naming most of these people because it's a miracle that they even talk to a journalist at all. Thankfully, I don't have like one of the scary institutional affiliations that they might be turned off by. So this is how I sort of got in. And um, he just self-described to me as a uh, 
fundamentalist Jew who is awaiting the return of the Messiah. Um, I'm not joking. It's going to sound like I'm exaggerating. I'm not. He actually, they, they actually wave in these areas flags that say uh, Messiah in Hebrew, and then they put that flag, including on army posts and police checkpoints, they fly the Messiah flag in Hebrew higher than the Israeli flag. So they actually view the they view the paramountcy of the return of the Messiah as um, their ultimate authority, rather than the Israeli state. So they actually are not, in some sense, Zionist in a way that is ordinarily as practiced or espoused within Israel, because they don't they they don't really abide by the dictates of secular law. Um, but what this guy was showing me was that there was a, um, and I posted a, I posted some photos of it a few days ago. When after October seventh, there was basically a vacuum of resources in the West Bank because there was a mad shuffle to get the forces arrayed for the now uh, six-week-old uh, war in Gaza, and so some of the. Uh, military and police who might have ordinarily been stationed in some of these places in these settlement areas were uh, were not there. And although they might turn a blind eye in certain respects and even maybe join the settlers in certain regards, because there are some military reservists and, and full act, active duty military who are themselves settlers now. Um, but anyway, there was a there was a basically a, a vacuum that emerged. And so these um, genuinely rabid um, fundamentalist settlers decided to take advantage of the opportunity and they basically drove out uh, some of these Arab, Muslim, uh, Bedouin uh, ramshackle villages, um, which in some cases have been there for uh, you know, decades. They aren't necessarily ancient villages because they're sort of like nomadic, in a sense, um, settlements. So I don't want to make it sound like they... Um, you know, destroyed the ancient like a Babylon or something, <laughs> uh, or some like uh, incredibly uh, deep rooted settlement. But obviously, these people have been in the area forever, and um, they have these settlements that are set up in in uh, area in one of the West Bank areas. So there's area A, B, and C, um, and the in not area A is full Palestinian controlled, and then the following two are uh, combinations where there's either uh, uh, full Jewish control or um, a mix. And so there are certain areas where there are a mix of Jewish settlements and Arab settlements. And, and so what the settlers use the opportunity to do is just physically drive out certain of these Arab Muslim Bedouins encampments. Um, and they're very modest encampments to begin with, but they were driven out. And then I was also taken on a tour by another, by somebody else, a rabbi actually, who um, who goes around and monitors settler activity, and there were a number of these small villages who were where you go and they're just, they just didn't have been abandoned, they've been ransacked, and abandoned, and a lot of this happened after October seventh when there was this kind of vacuum of control. Mm -hmm. um, so well, that's just, let me stop you right there for a second. Yeah. Give me just a minute here. At the Libertarian Institute, we publish books, real good ones. So far, we've got Will Griggs No Quarter. Sheldon Richmond's Coming to Palestine and What Social Animals Owe to Each Other, and four of mine, Fool's Aaron, Enough Already, The Great Ron Paul, and my brand new one, Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons.
And I'm happy to announce that we've just published our managing editor Keith Knight's first one, The Voluntarist Handbook, an excellent collection of essays by the world's greatest libertarian thinkers and writers, including me. Check them all out at libertarianinstitute.org books. And for a limited time, signed copies of Enough Already and Hotter Than the Sun are available at scotthorton.org books. Hey guys, I had some wasps in my house, so I shot them to death with my trusty Bug Assault 3.0 model with the improved salt reservoir and bar safety. I don't have a deal with them, but the show does earn a kickback every time you get a Bug Assault or anything else you buy from Amazon.com. By way of the link in the right-hand margin on the front page at scotthorton.org. So keep that in mind. And don't worry about the mess. Your wife will clean it up. It's uh, Michael Tracy here on Anti-War Radio. And he's in Tel Aviv now, but he was on the West Bank um, investigating, doing uh, journalism with some settlers, embedded with some settlers there and getting toured around. And I saw on Twitter where you posted photos of this Bedouin village that they had. I mean, do you have details about what exactly happened or you just know they were ran off? Well, that that one that you're referring to, that I was brought to by one of the settlers who was just telling me boastfully that people in his milieu Basically, just they they went and showed up. They they on mass went up, went to into one of these little encampments and just berated the people. Um, you know, there was some. I don't know if there was uh, violence at this particular encampment, but there was definitely violence at other encampments where the Jews use physical coercion and force to basically demand that the settlers flee. Um, they steal. You know, the Jewish settlers will steal stuff. Um, you know, a lot of these settlers are, you know, I saw some of them yesterday, actually. I went on a separate trip yesterday with this rabbi, and we pulled up on the side of the road to an olive grove that this rabbi who was pouring me around said was privately owned Palestinian land. Right? And what the Jewish settlers do is they bring their sheep into the Palestinians' olive grove and let them just eat up the olive groves, trees, so they're no longer uh, able to produce olives. <laughs> mm. And they're and under the protection a, of the IDF as they do this stuff, right? Well, uh, I didn't see any IDF soldiers actively protecting them, but this rabbi who was uh, I was with, he's more of a liberal progressive rabbi, so he's, at, he's opposed to the settlers. And um, he makes a point to call up the local police and try to convince them to come and enforce the law against these Jewish settlers, because again, this is actually also, in a sense, technically against Israeli law. Um, but they, they turn a blind eye, or they they never sh- the the police never showed up. They basically just gave them a whole bunch of excuses why they weren't weren't going to come. And so, yeah, I mean, the settlers operate with uh, impunity. But the thing that that really stood out to me, just observing these particular settlers, was that they're just a bunch of kids. I mean, they these. The one that came up to us just to like to talk to us, he couldn't have been older than like 16 or something. So uh, I don't know. It just uh, that kind of enhances the depressing quality of it in a sense, because essentially they're just like rival shepherd communities. Um, but one of the one of the shepherding communities has the either overt or tacit backing of the state. Um, so, yeah, that was that was interesting. And there's lots of other stuff that's been pretty wild to 
Well, it's anti-war radio. I'm Scott Horton, and I'm talking with Michael Tracy, the great independent journalist. And he's at mtracy.net. That's his Substack. He's in Tel Aviv now, but he's uh, just back from the West Bank where he's been touring around with some settlers and with, uh, as he says here, a uh, kind of reformed Jewish rabbi who's a critic of the settlers, but kind of gave him a tour around showing him what's what. And do you have, uh, I, I've seen a few numbers, and I know that this is not exactly what you're doing on the ground there, but um, do you have some numbers? Can you tell us a little bit about the extent of the cleansing campaign in the West Bank? I mean, beyond just the the two little Bedouin settlements, settlements that you saw yourself there. But can you give us sort of an overall sense of what's happening in the West Bank now as this horrible war is going on in Gaza? So I don't have any numbers that I've independently gathered or verified. I can just tell you that I personally have seen maybe five or six of these Bedouin settlements or villages in this area of the West Bank that is under that's joint Palestinian Israeli, where in some cases settlements that Arab settlements that have been there for decades are now ravaged. Personally seen and can vouch for at least five or six of these Arab Muslim settlements or encampments or uh, small villages mm-hmm. that were uh, basically uh, ravaged by the the hyper-religious Jewish settlers. Um, as far as broader data, I don't know. It's hard to say. Um, there are lots of different factions always collecting data. So I'm not really in a position where I can give you anything that I could yeah, personally with confidence say is like objective and the full truth, mm-hmm. but I could just give you what I've seen mm-hmm. myself. And then, but I guess both the settlers and the critical rabbi both told you that this is all escalated since the war broke out in October. This Oh yeah. I've seen, it. I've seen a bunch of the settlements where mostly in the week or two after October 7th, the settlers use the opportunity where there's this vacuum of control to basically expel or drive out the Bedouins. Yeah. And that was that was told to me both by the critic and the supporter of it. So it leads me to believe that there's some truth to mm-hmm. it. <laughs> well, any plans on going to Hebron or Ramallah and trying to uh, or East Jerusalem and uh, looking at things from the Palestinians point of view? What's going on right now? I've been to East Jerusalem. I did go there for a day. Oh, just, great. Um, chatting with people. Um, you know, it was it was interesting. People think that there's. Um, you know, what I what the Palestinians who I've talked to who told me is that everything is just getting dra- drastically worse for them since October 7th. They they have they speak in like whispered tones. They're always looking over their shoulder. Um, you know, an inter- interesting event that I personally was involved in is um, I went to a protest at a courthouse in Jerusalem a week or two ago where this history teacher his name was Meyer Barukin. Uh, he was detained by the Israeli uh, police, which is under the control of Ben Gavir, the uh, national security minister, um, who is from one of these radical settlements. And this was an Israeli Jew who was detained for basically posting stuff on Facebook that was deemed overly critical of the Israeli war effort. And so you had Israeli Jews who were showing up to protest the detention of this history teacher. It was mostly older people. And uh, when I was there one morning, and all of a sudden this band of riot police, they're called Yasom, 
ambushed this crowd of older Israeli people. Again, not young men who are rabble rousing and trying to cause trouble. These were older people. I was talking to a lady who was in her must have been in her 50s and then another lady who must have been in her 70s or 80s when we all got ambushed, including the old older women. And everybody was just totally shell-shocked because what they explained to me afterwards, meaning the Jews who were ambushed by the Israeli police, was that these are tactics that they would have ordinarily associated with police conduct in Palestinian areas. Mm-hmm. Now they're even using the similar tactics against the few remaining dissident Israeli Jews. Um, but yeah, uh, and I, but I've talked to Palestinians who obviously are... Uh, who are, have said that they cannot say anything because they'll just be beat up. And I haven't, I didn't see that myself personally, but it's, it's not hard to come across just any ordinary Palestinian who will attest to the climate drastically worsening for them since, um, mm-hmm. since October 7th. I, I, I was warned not to go. Uh, I'm actually leaving tomorrow. I'm going to probably maybe come back next month. Um, but I was warned not to go to Palestinian towns by people who say that I would be at risk. Now, I tend to doubt that. I'm pretty sure I could wrangle it. Um, uh, but you know, East, East Jerusalem was was fine for me personally in terms of safety. I mean, I think I think a lot of that does tend to be slightly exaggerated, though. You know, hard hard to say with specificity. I haven't gone to one of the Area A Palestinian enclaves, as they're called, where there's. Yeah supposedly full Palestinian control in places like, you know, Jenin or um, Ramallah or whatnot. But I'll, it seems uh, like if you make your contacts first, you'd be fine. You know, I mean, there yeah. is a war on, so it's not like there's no risk, but it seems like you should be all right uh, on the West Bank. I was going to ask you, uh, I, I would never put this on you, man, but I was going to ask you if you had any intention of trying to get into Gaza, but I think you probably know better than that, huh? Um, <laughs> as far as I can tell, the IDF only allowed, I mean, who actually, it might be slightly, slightly different now because there's purportedly this ceasefire slash hostage exchange mm-hmm. or prisoner exchange deal that's underway. Although I don't know if that's been officially initiated yet. Um, but as of now, the only entry that's allowed to Gaza, which is obviously being blockaded by Israel for the media, is these guided tours where you have to abide by certain conditions. Mm-hmm. And so like NBC and Fox and New York Times have done it. Um, Fox, they seem to give that guy Trey Yingst a lot of access and he just shows whatever like a, you know, rifle they see lying around on the ground. You might actually appreciate this about Israel. Everywhere you go, there's just like guys in sandals and sweatpants with their rifles slung around their their shoulders. Um, so it's a it's way a much more uh, gun friendly society than even the most pro Second Amendment parts of like. Texas or something. So there's uh it's pretty interesting in that regard. And yeah, although that's so no, more I haven't about, tried to go to Gaza. That's more about oppressing the other than just self-defense in the American tradition. But on the media here, I want to uh point out this piece from Politico today. Uh you mentioned the ceasefire and the questions that raises about access to Gaza. Well, according to Politico this morning, quote There was some concern in the administration about an unintended consequence of the pause, that it would allow journalists broader access to Gaza and the opportunity to further illuminate the devastation there and turn public opinion on Israel. 
I'm wondering, I would love to know which, which officials are being paraphrased there. <laughs> I know, me too. But of course, we do know that Politico is very close and friendly with the Biden administration. So this is probably not just some smear by a Republican congressional aide or something, you know? I, I do. I, I want to say one thing in Israel's favor, which I promise I'm not being compelled to do by like, Hasbara or anything. Um, it's just my genuine observation. Before I came here, you know, just in, in casual discussions with people who are generally critical of Israel, there was a fairly confident assumption that I would face problems entering the country because they maybe they would like go through my social media or something. Because I'm generally critical, I guess you would say, or more toward that side of the debate. Um, or that I'd be harassed or uh, followed or that, that, that I would encounter big obstacles in my ability to kind of travel around freely. And I have to say, I've had no problems with it whatsoever. I've been to the Knesset twice, including today. I've met um, people from different political factions, um, really unhindered. Um, and look, I'm an American with, with an American passport, which is in a way kind of like a getting out of jail card, free card that uh, gives you certain liberties that are not going to be enjoyed by others in this uh, part of the world. But for whatever it's worth, um, you know, it's, it's, it really hasn't been anywhere near as um, onerous as I think like I probably would have assumed before I came here. Now, people might want to accuse me of doing propaganda for Israel. Look, I mean, please, I'm just calling it like I see it. And uh, I acknowledge lots of other problems. But that's one thing I, I do think is worth acknowledging. Sure. All right. Well, good times, man. I appreciate you going all the way over there and especially going to the West Bank and reporting what you saw with your own eyes and, and what you learned from the settlers and, and that rabbi that took you around and, and the Palestinians you met there in East Jerusalem and the rest. It's uh, been very enlightening, man. So thank you very much. Yeah, I'm going to uh, I'm going to post some roundup stuff uh, in the coming days. So people want to see some more photos and whatever and some uh other reporting, log on to mtracy.net. It'll be there. Okay, great. All right. Well, thank you for coming back on the show, Michael. Really appreciate it. All right. Enjoyed it. All right, you guys, that is Michael Tracy. He, of course, is mtracy on Twitter, and mtracy.net is his website. Uh, reporting there from Tel Aviv, just back from the West Bank. And that's it for Anti-War Radio for today. I'm your host, Scott Horton. I'm editorial director at antiwar.com and author of Enough Already About the Terror Wars. Find the full interview archive at scotthorton.org and follow me on Twitter, if you dare, at Scott Horton Show. We're here every Thursday from 2.30 to 3 on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. See you next week.